There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Our guest for today's Legal Hour is Ludmilla Yamalova from Yamalova and Plefka. Ludmilla, we've had lots and lots of questions to get through and we've only just started. We've had a very interesting question text in. I think if we can start with some of those questions we did get um, from last week. The first one is from Mick. This question is, if I were to purchase a property jointly, 50-50 ownership with a non-UAE resident that will provide full funding for their share of the property, one thing first, can I take out a mortgage on my share separately and will both parties' names appear on the title deed? In short, no, that's not possible. And this is because there is no way for the bank to only have a security over half of the property in practical terms. Um, so therefore, if there is a mortgage on the property, the mortgage will be for the full amount. And it's because the system of... of uh, of registering a lien or a mortgage or security to a property in the UAE is is fairly simple still, and it's quite evo- and it's still in ev- its evolution. So therefore, for a bank, whenever they register their security to the property, if you look at the title deed, they have to ultimately register their interest over the entire property. There's just no other way of segregating it. And just a supplementary bit: if if, for example, they didn't need a mortgage, is it possible for the non-UAE resident to have? their the, the property on the name is that something that's workable uh, that's a great question absolutely in order to own property in the UAE one does not need to be a UAE resident and in fact in Dubai at least uh, there is an option that one uh, when uh, someone owns property they can actually become a UAE resident on the basis of their investment in the property as long as the property is valued over 1 million dirhams but let me just kind of turn that question a little differently. Uh, whether if a property is um, is jointly owned, uh, is it possible to get a mortgage to begin with, and and whether that mortgage would be attached to one person over or both people? Whether, in other words, whether the mortgage company has to include both owners um, onto the mortgage, because that was also another follow-up questions we had. And in short, that is possible for a mortgage company to just give a mortgage to one one of the owners, uh, but usually they will also register at least to some extent the interest of the other owner. Uh, but they don't necessarily require, for example, the financial information from the other owner as long as the first owner, or at least the, the, the main mo- owner, um, su- satisfies all the financing requirements in terms of actually being uh, being uh, subject uh, to that mortgage. But in other words, for let's say if Tim and I own the property together and uh, only I want to take mor- mortgage over the property, it is possible without bringing Tim into the equation, but just Tim needs to also be aware, as long as obviously I satisfy the requirements of vis-a-vis the bank, but Tim needs to be aware that once the ba- bank is brought into the equation and onto that property, you don't, even though you don't really have a mortgage of your own, you won't really be able to dispose of your interest in the property unless you have, and, unless and until you have mine and the bank sign off. So in a way, even though the mortgage is attached only to me, but you won't be able to do anything with your property uh, without me and the bank. Okay, so this is only possible with a, a real, uh, for want of a better phrase, gentlemanly agreement between the two parties to work it in that way. Indeed. And there has to be a level of trust there that most of us probably don't have. 
Well, exactly. And that's why there have been a lot of cases mm-hmm. where in jointly owned property cases and it's between spouses or even non-related parties. And actually, that is also possible. I know we've had questions before on the radio whether people need to be related in order to be registered as joint owners. And the answer is that they do not. Uh, but there have been a number of questions uh, related to the jointly owned property issue once um, there's a dispute between the parties. Can they can one party either sell their interest without a sign off the other party or can they walk away from the uh, from the investment and in short they cannot uh, unless they have the sign off of um, the other party or in the case of a mortgage uh, from the bank as well okay we have another real estate based question this one says a realtor stated she was a realtor of a property but there was no contact the owner is using the realtor and they said the villa would be available to them from february from February 2017. They gave the checks and the deposits and 60 days later the villa was still not available. We cancelled our contract but are still awaiting the returns of the checks and deposits. What are their options? Well, I would have preferred to answer this question differently. I guess I would have preferred to guide uh, the um, the listener differently. In other words, before you hand over the checks or sign any other documents, um, that you first identify who you're signing the documents with and give the check or the money to the right right party. In this case, and this unfortunately happens quite frequently, and, and we get questions on the show about very similar scenario fairly regularly, and that is, um, there is a broker involved, and so there's a third party, and often what, and the, that party actually may be acting in good faith. Uh, but what happens is that the tenant, for example, the, as, as is the case in this case, uh, gave money to the broker as a deposit to the other side, and then um, to, and then the landlord did not, did not come through with um, their side of the bargain. And so, so what happens? Well, in the in this case it would have been a better practice for the uh, tenant to give the deposit to the landlord. In other words, meet with the landlord directly or meet with someone who actually has a power of attorney from the landlord. And obviously prior to doing that, you want to do your typical due diligence. And as I use the word typical, I know it's, it's it should be typical, but in practice it, has, it hasn't really become um, a typical practice yet. And the, the typical due diligence should be obviously a copy of the title deed or actually seeing... Uh, preferably a fresh uh, verification from the land department that the title deed is still registered to that person, to the landlord. And then if dealing either directly with the landlord or someone who has a power of attorney from the landlord and that power of attorney also has to be recent and it has to be legally attested. And in that event, so let's say even if you do give a deposit under those circumstances, you will be able to claim the deposit back if um, if the property is not available timely because you will actually have dealt with someone who was either the landlord himself or was officially representing the landlord and therefore in that case it becomes a breach of contract. And so you are entitled to get your refund back um, if the contract um, has not been has not been met by the other side. But in the case when you have a third party, then it becomes an issue of who did you give money to? What did the contract say? Should you have given money to um, the broker? And uh, and it just becomes a lot more complicated. So in this case, you know, you basically what you want to do is you want to trace your money because ultimately this is all be- about the money. So the person, the tenant here gave the money to the broker uh, and relying on the representation of the property would be ready timely. Well, now the property is not. So therefore you can you can uh, categorize that as a breach of contract and the breach of contract, then you're entitled to a refund of whatever it is that you invested uh, relying on that contract. But that's easier said than done. Uh, If um, the broker agrees to refund the amount, then 
obviously that's the, that's the best case scenario, but in the event they don't, the only recourse is actually going to the rent committee. Okay. And in this case, I mean, we don't know if the realtor or the broker is you know, on the level, uh, as it were. We don't know if these checks have been encashed or not. But if they haven't, and you've handed checks over, in theory, if this person who received the checks is on the level and goes to encash those checks for whatever reason, uh, and you don't have the money to cover that, you're in a situation where you have breached the terms of the check, and therefore that is a criminal matter, unfortunately. Uh, for sure. And I will tell you, it's just how many years I've, I've been practicing here, and and there's still, there's still a belief amongst many that it's possible to recall the check when the conditions mm. upon which that check is issued were not met, that it's possible somehow to either request the bank or the authorities to have the check uh, canceled. It is not the case. There is no there's no system, there's no mechanism for someone to recall the check or to have the check canceled. Uh, and even the court cannot really cancel the check. And this, we in fact, just came up recently and we've um, done further due diligence so this information is fairly fresh. And that is, is it possible? Because there's another also very popular belief that um, uh, that it's possible for the court to request the court to have the checks issued. That is not possible either. The court, the only thing the court can do is say that the um, this amount that was due under the check, in fact, it was not due. So the court can issue a decision uh, claiming that particular amount was not due between the parties and therefore it's with that judgment and you can go back to the police or the authorities uh, and claim that uh, that uh, the payment of that check for example is not due because of the court judgment but the court itself cannot just call the bank or issue orders to the bank asking them to cancel the check this is drive live on dubai i 103.8 on drive live Thank you. It's the Legal Hour with Ludmilla Yamalova. Ludmilla, thank you very much for joining us today. We've got lots more questions for you to get through. We have one that's just come in from Ashwin. It's, uh, is it possible for someone to use a copy of a cheque to release it? Some brokers ask for cheque copies before transactions. No. In short, no. A copy of a cheque is, is not really an enforceable instrument. Why would they ask for them if it's not something to be enforced? Well, sometimes they, to be honest with you, in practical terms, they don't really have much of of a purpose. Uh, But I think it's more of an emotional comfort. Uh, And that is in some cases where a broker wants to prove to one or the other party that the other party is is serious about going ahead with the the process, they'll ask for a copy of the check. But uh, it's, you know, I guess if it's for emotional purposes, if it works, then it satisfies the other party, then it serves a purpose. But in legal terms, it's not an enforceable instrument. You might also realize a commission. It may help reinforce a commission, mightn't it? I suppose um, if you've got some kind of proof that there is intent there, certainly, yeah, that's that's a possibility, and it yeah. all depends on how you draft your commission agreement. But, but it is, it certainly is common for brokers to request a commission, even if um, the the transaction does not realize. Okay, let's stay with checks for a second. Abu Tixi, uh, my friends, issued me undated checks against his borrowings from me. He's not able to meet his obligations. What are my options? I don't know how much of a friend this person is or how much you're you know, willing to accept, but what are the legal options? Well, indeed, and you've uh, very pointedly uh, concluded uh, <laughs> basically the, well. the premise of, um, of your relationship with your friend, and that sort of that will determine your, the strategies that you may want to pursue. Uh, if your friend has borrowed money from you and is not not uh, is not able to repay your obligations, you really have two options. One, you actually use you cash those uh, undated checks, and you can you 
date them and you cash them, uh, knowing that they will that he doesn't have money to secure those checks or to settle those checks. You obviously anticipate what the next steps will be, and that is uh, a bounce check. Uh, if you reported to the, to the police, becomes a criminal offense, and then until it's settled, uh, you have um, that leverage over your so-called friend. But this is the problem with uh, with friendship. So you just need to be aware that a bounce check in of itself does not uh, get your tr- a friend in trouble. But once you report it to the police, um, then that person loses basically the ability to travel until they've settled the check. So it's it's in, it's your decision, personal decision as to uh, how dear that friendship to you is because it is that leverage of a check is very powerful, is very strong, and it's fairly immediate. Uh, but in many ways, obviously, it can be uh, it, it can be perceived at least draconian. So that's that. But that's pursuing uh, the the check strategy, which basically is is through the criminal process because a bounce check is a criminal uh, criminal claim. Now, if you don't want to pursue that strategy, uh, then you can always file a case with the civil court and then claim uh, repayment of, um, of of debt. Uh, and then obviously for that, it's, it's a fairly expensive process and it's a lengthy process. So um, here it's going to be more of a burden for you and it'll be, um, it'll be more expensive. It'll be uh, more timely and more, uh, more resource consuming. And uh, ultimately, if your friend doesn't have, even if you have a judgment in, in, um, in your favor and your friend does not satisfy it, you're basically at the same point where you were before. So legally speaking, you have two options, criminal and civil. But since you have an undated check, I would not recommend that you go civil. It, the, the criminal option is, is more effective. Uh, but um, in business terms, if your friend is, you, if you know your friend cannot pay right now, perhaps you may want to negotiate some sort of a, a repayment plan uh, by way of either new, newly issued checks or some sort of an agreement that's, that's secured by a set of newly issued checks. Okay, we've got a question from Tahir, I think should be joining us on the line. Tahir, uh, what's your question for Ludmilla? Hi, my question is uh, regarding a tenant's contract. So uh, I rented an apartment, a one-bedroom, mm-hmm. uh, last year. Uh, I, I issued the checks in the favor of the landlord, uh, who unfortunately passed away last year. Then the, uh, the broker who was involved in between, he requested me to revise the checks in the name of uh, the son of the uh, landlord. However, uh, I asked for uh, 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 that the la- that the current title deed need to be revised in the name of the son, so that I can revise the checks in his name. But then uh, they, they they kept on following up with me for the revised checks, and I said no. I mean, sorry. I mean, just uh, I need the revised title deed. Uh, in order to issue the revised checks. So what happened recently is that uh, uh, the, I, I received a notice, uh, like uh, through a call from the broker, that the son of the landlord does not want to renew the contract, and uh, I have to leave the apartment. So my question is that the first is that uh, is the eviction notice is it valid? I mean, is it a valid eviction notice for me mm-hmm. to leave the apartment? Uh, okay, that's well, question one. Yeah, that. yeah, you have a very, uh, very interesting scenario and, and one that we've recently dealt with. So uh, my information is, is pretty uh, is, is pretty recent and fairly comprehensive. So number one, it sounds like right now there's a bit of a legal limbo, uh, and that is uh, with regards to the ownership of the property. As you rightfully pointed out, uh, for you to uh, for you to transfer the money to the son is you d- there isn't really a legal basis for you to do so unless there is some legal basis for you to do so. And the legal basis uh, would be a court order 
that from whatever relevant court uh, that um, um, that ultimately determines who the beneficiaries are of the of the deceased landlord. Um, so in this case, a son perhaps may seem like a natural uh, heir to the landlord, but you don't really know. Uh, who the other heirs might be, or uh, what um, it would be, the landlord's wishes were, or what would have been, um, perhaps there was a, there was a will. Um, so you really need to have some sort of a decree from the court, and usually it's called a decree of distribution, uh, with regards to who the lawful heirs are of that particular property. And until that is done, and so, and then there's another step actually. So first you have a decree of distribution, and that is, for example, the landlord had five heirs, and the property or the landlord's assets are to be distributed amongst these five heirs. That's the first step. And so without that, you shouldn't really, the, the property is really, is in the legal, legal limbo. But even then, even with that distribution uh, decree, uh, there is another question as to uh, transfer of the property in the name, I, either in the name of that of those five heirs or in the name of, of perhaps one heir. So often what happens between heirs is that they will, um, they will execute a settlement amongst themselves where they will decide, for example, that, well, yes, there are five of us, but I'll take this property, you'll take that property. And so, for example, so what you would want to look for is, number one, the decree of distribution, and number two, if there's a settlement agreement amongst the heirs deciding how they want to dispose of or how to do, want to distribute um, those assets. Um, so, it, And then after that, you let's say if there's a settlement agreement that says that a particular asset will go to a particular heir, then ultimately there will be a title deed um, transfer from the deceased owner into the name of that heir. And that point, that's when the property comes out of so-called the legal limbo. Now, in that process, you can decide whether you want to wait all the way until the property has been transferred uh, to the new uh, to the new owner, or if you want to rely on the distribution uh, decree from the court, which ultimately is also a, an enforceable legal instrument and is safe to rely on. Uh, but if you want to be difficult, then you can wait until the property has actually been finally transferred to the new owner before you do anything else. So that's kind of the general run-through in terms of what happens in the event uh, of the landlord uh, passes. But in terms of some specific nuances that you mentioned, such as, for example, the eviction notice that com uh, comes from a broker you're absolutely correct. That eviction notice is not valid because in order to issue an eviction notice, somebody who issues, issues has to have standing in the property. And the standing usually belongs to the owner of the property. Well, in this case, the owner has um, has passed away. And until there is a new legal owner, no one else has that standing. And presumably, they might have issued that eviction notice relying on the power of attorney. And as you also rightfully pointed out, uh, once a person um, has passed away, the power of attorney dies along with that person, so it no longer has the validity. And in many ways, in many cases, that should people continue to use it, but it, it under the laws of, of this country and any other country, it basically constitutes fraud because the power of attorney ceases to exist um, after the passing of the person who issues it. Um, so in your case, kind of a round down, um, uh, or con to conclude, you have two choices. Basically, you can wait for either some sort of a decree from the court that establishes who the heirs are and then based on but, but even then um, you need to have some some sort of an agreement unless there is only one uh, one heir you want to have an agreement between the heirs as to how they want to distribute uh, for example the proceeds from the property because if there are five heirs you shouldn't just be giving the rent to to the son only unless there's an agreement amongst them and you have a valid valid document uh, to, um, uh, to to back up that agreement, such as the power of attorney from the other heirs, trans allowing one heir to receive proceeds uh, from the property. So it's very complex, and it really depends on uh, on 
the who the, the basically the distribution of the estate and then until that distribution takes place usually quite some, quite a bit of time past this um, so you're fairly safe in basically just holding your ground and staying in the property until until you've um, you've sorted out they've sorted out the legal uh, the legal ownership but but obviously you also want to act in good faith so you could deposit your cash with the rent committee for example but uh, but the rent committee doesn't usually like to keep money or keep checks uh, for uh, for an indefinite period of time. So it may be that they'll call you back and ask you to pick it up if there's nobody else can claim it with a legal right. Uh, but at least you will have, by doing so, you will have established evidence that you have tried to pay rent and that you have tried to stay current. But any other communications with the, uh, with if you believe the, the, deceased owner's family would also basically satisfy that same requirement of, of showing good faith that you've tried to stay compliant. And, and from a budgetary standpoint, you want to make sure that you have allocated uh, all that rent uh, because the time will come for you to pay it and you will have to pay it as long as you remain the property and, and remain um, uh, to derive benefit from it. Uh, so from a commercial standpoint, just make sure that you've, <laughs> you've saved up, you've set that, that money aside. To here, uh, I hope that helps you. Uh, thank you so much for the clarification. Just, just one more question. I mean, if uh, if I want to help out the uh, like the landlord, can I? Uh, I mean, if I request an indemnity letter from the broker uh, uh, addressing that uh, they will indi- they will indemnify me in case if there is any any loss for me, will that help me? No, it will not help you. It will only complicate things for you because you really don't. I mean, with that indemnification letter, is only as good as the party's willingness and ability to comply with it. So, when the time comes, you you may be sued by other or by other heirs of, of the mm-hmm. landlord who also have legal right to it. And at that point, you find yourself in in a pickle, so to speak, where you need now to defend why you've given money to somebody else um, other than the legal owners. And that point, yes, you have the indemnity letter but what good is it for you you'll have to go to court to try to enforce it so in mm-hmm. in legal terms if from a liability standpoint it is not safe for you to give money to anyone other than the the rightful uh, the rightful owners and who those rightful owners are basically really depends on on the documentation and until there has been a final disposition of the or distribution of the assets you won't know that and you want to be very careful about giving money to anyone else um other than basically legal heirs. Tahir, that's all the time we have. Thank you so much. Do appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All the best. Bye-bye. Legal Hour on Drive Live. Our guest today is Ludmilla Yamanova. Lots more texts coming in for you, Ludmilla. We have one here from Pete. He says, if a mainland sponsor dies, how does business with expat business owners typically continue to operate? What uh, changes? Does anything stop legally? What are the considerations? It's a very complex question once again, and it all because it all stems uh, on the fact of basic what happens with the deceased owner's estate, and that is who becomes the lawful owner of the estate. And until that decision is made, it's it's very possible in most cases actually the company can uh, the the, the business of the company can be halted. And the reason for this is because until the court, once again, we need a decree from the court to decide who ultimately stands in the shoes of the deceased um, shareholder and in what in what capacities. Until we have that decree from the court, 
uh, you can imagine why the heirs and the court obviously would be concerned about continue, allowing for the company to continue to to run its business uh, because all sorts of decisions may be made uh, without the consent of uh, of the lawful owners or heirs um, of the deceased shareholder. Uh, for example, transferring of, of funds, and obviously every time we talk about running of a company, we're talking about money. And that's the concern, the, the authorities' concern and the court's concern, that uh, if you allow for the companies to operate without the adequate supervision from someone other than uh, the current living shareholders and managers, then there is a potential for risk. Uh, that the funds could be squandered, the, the business could be mismanaged. Uh, logically, however, equally so, I think the, the living shareholders would worry that by allowing uh, the company to, for, or, dis, or disallowing the company to, uh, to practice or do business, the business could suffer more. Uh, but I, unfortunately, there is, it's not a, a simple scenario. So in most cases, uh, a, a court would either appoint a trustee uh, to oversee the uh, the management of the company or the operation of the company, and that is what you would also want to request as as the surviving shareholders. Uh, and uh, uh, otherwise, it is possible that the heirs of um, of the deceased shareholder may ask the court uh, to issue an order to practically stole the business of the company or the operation of the company until there's a decree of distribution in terms of who takes on the shares of, uh, of that business or of that company and, um, and in what capacities and what, um, in what degrees. And that could take a fairly significant amount of time. We, you know, we know of, of inheritance cases that have dragged on for years and uh, we've even heard cases that dragged on for 10 years because, for example, if the deceased owner uh, has a fairly complex um, inheritance structure and, and multiple uh, potential heirs, often there are all sorts of issues that happen between the heirs before they decide how particular assets are distributed. So just be mindful that this could be a fairly complicated and a lengthy process. So the best thing for you to do is to apply to the court and ask them to appoint a trustee in the meantime. Here is another real estate question. I'm renting an apartment. It's less than a couple of weeks to the renewal date. I found another place, want to move, but my current landlord won't refund my security deposit because I haven't given a 60-day notice uh, based on our agreement. Can he do that, or is there any way I can request a refund? Well, you can always request a refund, but if the you need to be prepared and manage your expectations, if the landlord refuses to give you a refund, um, then you need to be prepared to have legal basis upon which you're requesting uh, to get a refund. If you if you've terminated your agreement uh, prematurely. So in this case, sounds like you, there, there was a provision. So in the, the, the legal basis for your relationship with determining that particular situation would come down to the ultimate agreement. And sounds like in the agreement, there is a clause that requires you to provide a two-month uh, notice. And so therefore, it is logically and legally the landlord can ask you uh, for that amount as, um, uh, you know, as a penalty for premature termination. Now, in legal terms, if you are fundamental object to paying that because you think it, for example, either grossly unfair uh, or disproportionate for, uh, because, uh, for instance, the landlord uh, has found a, a new uh, tenant to take over the property, let's say, the next day. So you could bring them the case uh, with the rent committee and, and challenge the penalty clause or the amount of the penalty clause on the grounds that it is, is disproportional because the landlord has not really actually sustained damages in the value of those two months. 
but in many cases, it's probably not worth it because uh, the the effort of filing a court case or the RDC case and, and fighting that battle in many cases, in many ways, may just not be financially or commercially uh, appealing, and it's just best to pay the penalty and move on, unless, obviously, the, the penalty is significant and it becomes commercially feasible. All right, then let's look at some more questions coming in. One more on the text line. We've still got some questions uh, on the phones, I think, to get to. You're looking puzzled over there, Anna. So are you trying to work something out? Yeah, I'm just trying to get to the bottom of that. But before we do, we can okay. get to Amit's question, and that's okay. what's the process of verification of title deeds with the land department? And is there a template for a spot or secondary, par- secondary market purchases? Yes, uh, both very good questions. With regards to verification of the title deed, it's um, it's fairly common practice, and that is, well, at least it's it's the practice that's available. I'm not sure how many people avail themselves of that option, but you can approach the land department and ask them to provide, uh, to stamp uh, the, the copy of the title deed to make sure. Well, actually, as I say that, let me, let me take a step back. What you want to do is you want to request from the owner of the property to give you a verified or recent verified by land department title deed because they're the ones actually who can request it from the land department and that is an it's, for them it's a fairly simple process all they need to do is just go to land department and the land department will stamp uh, that that property that, that uh, still belongs to the uh, the person who's listed listed on the title deed and it's a fairly simple procedure and it doesn't cost very much money so as a tenant or somebody who wants that verification that's what you would want to request you want to request for the landlord to provide you that verified document sometimes the brokers or whoever holds a power of attorney from the landlord uh, may also be able to request the same document but that's basically the process for verifying and occasionally depending on the circumstances if you approach the land department with a copy of the title deed they might at least verbally tell you yes this property still belongs to uh, to that person uh, so so that's kind of the, the process of uh, title verification. With regards to uh, the contract, the, actually the land department now has standard, what they call standard uh, sales and purchase agreements. And so if you have a transaction that's fairly um, straightforward, uh, you don't even really need to have a separate document with uh, the parties with, uh, with whom you're transacting. You can just relay, uh, rely on those documents from, um, from the land department, and they're available on the RIA website. Uh, so, and there are different three different types of agreements. One is for the one is for brokers, and then one is for to sell, one is to to buy. Uh, so, but standards are available, and otherwise, uh, uh, there are a lot of other templates that are circulating in the market. But neither none of them is actually standard, nor do you need to take it as such. So, make sure that whatever you sign just makes sense. And the making sense, it basically should just in- include all the important elements of. The, the specification of the properties, the parties, the price, and the deposit, and uh, you know, the completion date for the transaction. And other than that, you don't need to overcomplicate it. So, And in many cases, we, we approached often by parties who just believe that there is a requirement for a contract. Uh, other than the standard contract with the land department, there isn't one. So if you are trans- transacting with someone whom uh, you believe, and, um, and it's a very, it, you don't even need to have any other agreement. You just Both of you can show up to the land department and do the transfer right there and then without any other uh, documents. We want to hear from you. Find us on Facebook. Tweet at Dubai I 1038 FM. Legal Hour on Drive Live. 
Our guest today is Ludmilla Yamalova. We do have quite a few more questions to get through, Ludmilla. We've got one from Bezowit. And this is, I want to sponsor my husband. Um, on my current salary, I'm not sure if it's enough. Um, I've heard there were preferences in terms of whether if you're a teacher or an engineer and you have a salary under 10000 it's possible. Um, can you clarify for me what the case is with women sponsoring their husband on a visa? Uh, sure. First of all, the law does not specifically state the amount uh, which is required for a party to be able to qualify to sponsor. And that's with regards to the amount. It also does not limit uh, the professions uh, who are allowed to sponsor. Uh, there is, uh, so the clause is fairly general, and then it just it says, it says actually professions that are of value to society or something to that, uh, to that effect. But then it just lists such as, for example, teachers, engineers, and such. Uh, but there is, um, uh, but there is this sort of notion that there's about a ten thousand dirham limit uh, for uh, for a spouse, for example, for a wife to to uh, sponsor a husband. But it's not really actually in the books. And in most cases, that particular limitation has come in or has played when a wife or a, a woman wants to sponsor her children. But obviously, because the presumption is, with children, will cost more money to to fund and sponsor, so the requirement might be higher. But actually, it's not in. It's not specifically listed either in the law or the immigration guidelines. Uh, so it may be possible to apply and sponsor husband even under a salary of less than 10,000. Definitely over 10,000 is possible, but it may even also be possible under 10,000, provided that you're a certain profession that um, I guess the authorities might find valuable. Now, if you are being rejected on, on, that, uh, on that ground, then my recommendation is just be determined and be persistent because we've had actually cases where we've been able to convince uh, authorities uh, to reconsider only because, again, there's nothing in the law that says one way or the other, and there's just certain common practices. And uh, as long as you can convince that your profession is, is valuable and and then there is, um, um, the, I guess, if your salary is sufficient enough in the authority's eyes, um, then they might be able to grant you uh, an approval. Uh, but so that's 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 the first part of that question. The second part is, and this is very important to clarify, <clears throat> if you sponsor as a woman, if you sponsor your husband, you can sponsor your husband uh, who will then have a UAE residence visa, but but uh, but the man or the husband will not be able to work uh, under that residence visa, and this is different from if you flip the equation the other way around. In other words, when a husband sponsors his wife, the wife actually can work, even though in the visa will say a, a housewife not allowed to work. But if the husband gives an NLC, then the woman can work, but it doesn't work the other way around. So in other words. A wife cannot give an NOC to the husband to work. So if a husband is sponsored by, um, by his wife, that's perfectly fine, and he will have uh, full benefits of a UE resident, but he will not be able to work under the visa. So if he, if he finds employment, he will be required to, uh, to move on to his own visa. Okay, hopefully that one uh, helps. We haven't talked about VAT on the program today. We were talking about that last night, but I do have a quick VAT question for you. question that came in last week, is it true that commercial shop leases are subject to 5% VAT? If yes, is that only on the base rent or the total, including all the service charges as well, Ludmilla? Uh, very good question. So, yes, for clarification purposes, uh, when we talk about real estate, there is commercial, there is residential. Uh, all commercial properties are subject to VAT, be it for sale or rent. And now, with regards to what amount uh, the VAT applies to in 
for a per, in the per, in the case of a rental uh, a rental case where there's let's say where you rent an office, it's on the actual rent amount, and this is because all other services will be subject to their own VAT. So, in other words, the question here is, well, what about utilities and telephone and uh, air AC and so on and so forth? Each one of those utilities will also be subject uh, to its VAT. So, therefore, in the case of a, re- a rental contract it will just be on the value of um, uh, of that lease but unless unless there's some other the contract is drafted differently and in that case you want to be you want to be careful you want to just separate so let's say if you do pay uh, a certain a fixed amount that includes and your rent and your t- utilities and everything else uh, then you just want to make sure that that's clearly spelled out so that you're not basically uh, paying d- uh, twice for so the same service needs to be apportioned in the contract so you know what all the rates are Correct. Uh, for each service. Um, does that mean utilities are going to go up for me in my uh, little house, by oh, the way? Indeed, yes, but 5%. 5%. Oh, yes. Um, fantastic. So any kind of services, and that's also one of the clarifications that came out uh, from uh, from the VAT law now that it's been issued, and uh, it, that is even government services will also be subject to VAT, and that's why the utility provision is a, is, a, is a service that's provided at least in many cases by government or semi-government companies, and those services will also be uh, will will be uh, subject to VAT unless provided otherwise. If this okay. continues, you'll only be able to afford to send one of your children to school, so pick uh, a favourite one. I'm thinking homeschooling is <laughs> the way forward at the moment. Um, we have another question. This one is from last week. No name on this one, Ludmilla. It says, I'm about to leave my employer and want my visa cancelled as soon as possible so I can then start the new job. Should I wait until my existing employer pays my end-of-service benefits and final salary before submitting for cancellation, or am I protected even if I cancel before the final settlement? Well, I'll give you my recommendation. The recommendation is, yes, you should wait until you've been paid out and your visa is cancelled so that you can properly move on to your next employment. Uh, for sure, but that's that's the preferred um, preferred course of action. But it uh, it often happens when uh, there is a new job that's waiting, and you have not agreed with your previous employer on your under-service benefits, and therefore you you're eager to move on to your next position, but you have not quite closed uh, the issue with your previous employer. So that becomes a little more complicated. And there is a process actually with the courts. You actually would have to file a case with the court, and for employees, it is possible for the court to uh, to uh, with with the court case to actually ask immigrations to have the, your visa cancelled that which will allow for you to uh, to move on to uh, to the new company and then battle out your issue with regards to your service benefits with the previous employer separately uh, so it's it's possible to do it but it's just it's more complicated and therefore my advice was if you can uh, leave uh, with a sort of a clean break then my recommendation that you do that okay. Two or three seconds left. I'll give you ten. Uh, will schools pay VAT on utilities and other services, Ludmilla? Uh, well, uh, schools will be exempt, mm-hmm. uh, and with unless, but but not all of the services. So, for example, anything that's sort of mandatory, such as school, uh, school certain school books and and uh, other kind of academic services, they will be exempt. But for example, if there is additional books or additional classes that are that are under the umbrella of the school, uh, but there are not necessarily mandatory services that those would be subject to, for example, dance classes. It, it is possible dance right. classes, certain other additional books will actually be subject to VAT. So my dance class is gone, isn't it? Oh, what are you going to do? That's 15 seconds, but we'll let you off. Just one thing briefly, another question that's popped up. I want to renew my wife's visa. How many days before it's up? I think this is the question. Can I go to the immigration office? You get 30 days, do you not, from the date of... 
uh, for the renewal. Uh, yeah. yeah, can I go before? I think this person is asking. Yes, for sure. I mean, you can you can basically, right. and also there's a process now that if you are you can suspend your dependents visa. So you don't even if you are, if your dependents are on your visa and then you are changing your visa, you don't need, need to cancel them. You can just suspend uh, suspend their visas pending your uh, the renewal of your visa or switch to your visa, and then basically it's a much simpler process. So you don't even need to worry about canceling and restarting a new. Okay, that's the legal hour for today. Our guest has been Ludmilla Malava from your Malava and Pleska. As ever, thank you very much. My pleasure. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.